Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We love this episode. We think you will too. Marianne will be interviewing the wonderful and brilliant Stephanie Boyos Griffin of the Botsteber Institute for Wildlife Fertility Control and of the Humane Society of the United States. And they will be discussing some of the problems faced around the world by animals who, for whatever reason, are considered overpopulated. And some of the things that should be done when that happens, which includes not automatically assuming there's actually a problem. I love that. I love that yeah, so no, much. That, that was the point that she really made over and over again, that, yeah, there are scientific, maybe not solutions, but scientific approaches here. But this is really so often just a political or social problem where people think there's a problem. People think animals are a problem. They're not actually a problem. Yeah. Yeah. On the bonus segment, you'll be hearing more of my conversation with Stephanie. And of course, if you're a flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on this Tuesday after this podcast goes up. You can always find it on the flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at Our Hen House dot org slash donate. Also, as a COVID time feature, we're doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern on Fridays. They're so good. Last week, we had filmmaker Liz Marshall, who you recently heard on the Our Hen House podcast as our special guest. And our flock who joined us for that Flock Friday had so many wonderful questions for her. She was so generous with her time. And these are really cool Friday afternoon events. So I hope you join us. If you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. So before we get to the interview, I wanted to tell you, that I, you know, I moved recently from Los Angeles to upstate New York. And for the time being, anyway, I'm in this like rural town, which even though I'm only a half hour from you, it's it's sort of a different landscape. And it's it's it feels kind of conservative up here. It sort of makes me uncomfortable sometimes, but it's also very beautiful. And I will not let the conservative nature of some of my neighbors take that away from me. So I was pleased to find a Facebook group that popped up that said no place for racism or inequality on uh, regarding my town specifically. And I had to write all of these like essay questions to to join the group. And I actually enjoyed them. And I joined the group. And the very first post that I saw was about a local dairy farm in the area that someone was writing about because That's they so learned because this this site didn't have anything to do with animals, did it? Nothing. No, nothing. That's really crazy. And it was the top post. It had been posted an hour before. And it was about this this dairy farm that is supporting or endorsing the three percenters. This group believes in the right to armed resistance to the U.S. government and followers of the three percent movement provided security to the right wing neo-Nazi terrorists who marched in the 2017 Unite the Right protest in Charlottesville. So, I mean, the whole thing is is completely bananas. That actually, as you might remember, resulted in the death of, of a counter protester as well as two two state troopers. So it's really uh, a very scary group. And the way that it's tied to this dairy farm is that they they endorse them. And the person who commented who lives in my town said they wanted people to know about it because apparently this this dairy puts out these milk bottles on, you know, for their product on people's doorsteps in my neighborhood. Very 1950s like. 
Oh, God. When I was a kid, we used to get milk like that. It was so cute. And now I realize it was so horrifying. I think there's actually a vegan company that does that. We should look up what that is because I have heard that and I love that. No, I remember that so well. I remember the milk box. We had the milk box for years after they stopped doing that. It was a little green box you put out on your porch. They would bring milk. So many things from your childhood that you think were so cute turn out to be horrifying. That's the awful thing about learning. Well, anyway, let's, <laughs> all get, this. let's get back anyway, to white supremacy. Okay, so back to this. So I was like, holy shit. And I, uh, you know, I live, this is a small town. I was heartened to see that the amount of people in the group is about 10% of the population of my town. 10% is important because 10% can be a tipping point. And I think there's a lot of power in 10%. So anyway, I responded and I said that I I was upset to hear it and that I couldn't help but notice the irony in the fact that dairy itself is arguably a manifestation of white supremacy. And I went on to talk about how the vast majority of people in the global majority, like over 70 percent of black Americans and nearly 98 percent of Asian Americans, for example, are lactose intolerant. And the government knows this, but it still includes dairy in their suggested dietary guidelines, which you know, is arguably means that when a big chain company like Starbucks upcharges for its non-dairy alternatives, it's the racist act. And of course, milk is a white supremacist symbol. If you just yes, Google they, that. I think they've adopted it for that very reason. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, that, it, that, that milk is the drink of choice. I thought I know a lot about what goes on in these circles, but milk is the drink of choice because yes. there are so many people of color who can't drink it and digest yeah. it. Right. This exactly. This is so That's, gross. I can't believe this I is know. happening in your town. I, of course, respond to that. And I'm thinking like, OK, well, like you talk, you put down dairy in any rural environment and you're going to be hated because people feel so passionately about it. But, you know, someone said, wow, that was very insightful, which, you know, I'm talking about Facebook. So, like, I still was happy to get an affirming comment oh, on Facebook. <laughs> but that aside, like that's bananas, right? Totally bananas. It's totally, it's just so creepy. I can't believe it. And there really isn't that much dairy, you know, actual dairy farms. I mean, I know there are a lot upstate, but you're not that far upstate. And it's not really like a deeply embedded in the society. It's not like, like you were talking last week about Vermont. It's not like in Vermont where there are dairy farms absolutely everywhere. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a little bit more room for you to get a positive response than than right. in a place where dairy is just though, you know, I'm kind of talking through my hat because people everywhere just think dairy is just the greatest thing in the world. It's so disgusting, even even in places where there's a lot of dairy farms like in Vermont. And yet they're right by the side of the road and you see these animals imprisoned in these horrible barns and and people just drive by and think it's cute. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. They think it's cute. Like, I know. All right. They don't know some of the details, like how they take their babies away from them and they cry for days and, you know, all of the cruelties that are kind of behind closed doors. But so much of dairy is not even behind closed doors. Like, and and everybody thinks it's great. It's just the, I you know, of all the, like, there are a lot of foods, but dairy is somehow the craziest, the, the most obviously abusive that you're taking babies' foods away from them. And, uh... Though, why am I saying that? Because they kill the other, you know, like it's all just abuse. Oh, they're, they're all babies. But flashback to the 1950s and there you were a little baby getting your milk on the stoop. And and I thought, it, thought was it was great. adorable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I you're, was you're stupid. Parent, 
I was well, a stupid <laughs> child. <laughs> okay. And I came of age in the 80s where like milk did a body good and we ate, yeah, we did, drank they, milk. They made you with, do, I, fortunately, I always hated milk. I'm glad about that. I never liked it. Oh, they made you drink it every day at school. Every day I had it for dinner in this like in the same red glass. And every time I think mm. of it, I think of that red glass that I drank it in and I hated it. And by the time the 80s rolled around, it was skim milk, which I don't know. They're all disgusting. But, yeah, they're all you disgusting. Know, I think you were drinking full fat milk. And, you know, when I was in Vermont recently, there there's these this landscape of these cows like dotting the scenery. And it's sort of iconic to Vermont. Like you see these gorgeous like hills and mountains with this right now, these beautiful fall colors. And then there's the fucking cows and everyone just thinks, ah, oh, Vermont. And I think, oh, death. You know, and I think about like when I have this book coming out in December, which is coming up, it's called The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. And really, we haven't heard about that before, Jasmine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was on the the Amtrak (laughs) train. As you might recall, I took myself on a writing retreat, which was before COVID. Obviously, I was on a cross country Amtrak trip writing and I was in my little cube, my little bed area that I that was just me. And I would fall asleep and I'd wake up and I'd like open my little blinds and going across me in the heartland, dairy cows, dairy cows, dairy cows. A lot of the children on the like observer deck were like, look at the cows, moo, moo. And it's like, oh, my God, like this is the ultimate in gaslighting. Dairy is the ultimate in gaslighting. The ultimate. It, It really is. It's true that other animals are slaughtered. But people aren't actually, they don't think that's benign. They just like bury it. They don't think about it. They ignore it. They repress it. Like they pretend it's not happening. Dairy, they actually think it's cute. Then you've got places like Ben and Jerry's who, speaking of Vermont, they're based in Vermont. And of course, they have vegan options now, which on one hand is wonderful. Like I love the dairy-free options from Ben and Jerry's. And you kind of never thought the day would come. If you've been vegan long enough, you never thought... Ben and Jerry's would have vegan options. Because Ben and Jerry's is, I mean, it is a Vermont company, of course, as everyone knows. And they always had that, I, the, just what you were just talking about, that iconic Vermont. Oh, dairy is just so wonderful. It's so cute. It's so charming. It's so Vermont. I might have mentioned Ben and Jerry's last week, now that I'm thinking about it, on the podcast, because when I was in Burlington, there was a sign on a Ben and Jerry's store that said, and white supremacy. And I was, I think I mentioned this last week, like, yeah, okay, well, (laughs) dairy and white supremacy go hand in hand, motherfuckers. But, you know, that aside, like, I feel so torn because as a strategic action, I, of course, am in full celebration of a mainstream company like Ben & Jerry's offering vegan ice creams. But when I think about the death, I am like dead, dead inside well, <laughs> when I think about the those way. dairy cows. I know. I that's know. That's always the way when, you know, it's it's it, there's reason for great celebration when an abusive company does something that's not abusive. But it's only ever a first step. And yeah, you hate to support them because why not just support the vegan companies? Well, and speaking of which, please tell me about like anything that is not milk right now. Because I, I actually have I a, can't handle it anymore. I just can't I actually handle have a new. This is not this is not an announcement. It's really just me talking about a food that I just had that was yummy. And some what of you have probably heard of this before. This company, Alpha Foods, they're a pretty new company, I think. But I had never had any of their foods. And my regular supermarket, which is where I shop nowadays, not at a health food store because the regular supermarket has curbside. They have one of their products. The company is Alpha Foods, and the one thing they have is is the Alpha 
beefy cheddar, C-H-E-D-D-R, pot pie. Oh my God, mm. it was so good. This is not an ad. I, I have no money in this company. It was so good. It was very small mm. and it wasn't that cheap. So, uh, you know, for other people, it was probably normal size, but I like to eat. Oh, it was delicious. So try one of those. That'll that'll get that That's taste helpful. of like hideous, hideous animal based dairy out of your out of your head. Yeah. And I can emotionally eat my feelings, which I'm I, I'm in. Yeah, it's a problem, isn't it? Days. I don't think no, we're the only one with this problem. I'm not I don't consider it a problem. I consider it a wonderful thing. When I'm upset, I like to go to food as something to soothe me. And I'm glad to know that Alpha is there and I'm going to try it out. I just don't understand like how. I am managing to eat as much as I am when, and as diligently as I am when I really do try to buy food that's healthy. And I do pretty well when I order from the grocery store. You know, it's more going out to eat where you get indulgent. And I haven't gone out to eat as long as I can remember. Well, a few takeout meals. Mm-hmm. But uh, even those, I hardly ever do them. And, you know, it's so depressing when when you go to the refrigerator and you open it and the only thing in there is vegetables yeah, I know that should make us happy. <laughs> like, well, we I do. Have per- to tell you. We should be perfect people, but it's so exciting when there's also an alpha pot pie in the freezer. And not, but but you know, then then I feel guilty about the vegetables because I don't want them to go bad, so I cook them anyway. And it's just an unending nightmare. This pandemic, I have to cook. Although I love you very much, you are terrible in the snack food department. Like when I come over, and you know, I'm always hungry. I'm like, Marianne, do you have anything I could eat? And I open up the fridge and there's like a spaghetti squash <laughs> no come no on. i know i really try i still but i still eat all the time i don't know how I, that's probably why i never have anything because i ate it all you know i'm good when i'm ordering from the supermarket i don't buy a lot of junk food but somehow i manage to find it even even in these difficult times mm-hmm. and thank mm-hmm. god i do or i'd probably lose my mind we, we have to savor our simple pleasures oh my god marianne speaking of which what is that liqueur you bought like speaking of oh. simple pleasures, like that is the best thing. It's called Chinola, passion fruit liqueur. Okay. I'm gonna it write is so that delicious. I, I don't even think I should have it in the house. <laughs> no, you've been doing well by it. But anyway. It's from it's the Dominican the Republic. Mm. Apparently it's very popular there and I can understand why. That sounds incredible. If anybody has an idea for like a cocktail using Chinola. Oh. Because I don't have any cocktail recipe. I just like have a... I just drink a shot. Of Did you ever Google? But you have those cute little shot glasses. They're like the, I do, like, I do. But it, it, did you ever Google like like cocktails to make with fancy liqueurs? Because I'm sure there's some blog and no, some... I'm, no, I'm sure I can find it on Google. But, but if I'd you rather have, if somebody wrote in with one, well, and we used to back in the day when we first started, we crowdsourced like everything in our lives on our henhouse. I remember when I was younger, I I had adult acne. I, I thankfully haven't had acne in many many years. But I had acne on my face and I remember talking about it on the podcast. One of our listeners at the time was like a natural dermatologist and sent me these like vegan products that she thought would be great. And they like cleared up my skin. And then Jack Norris told me that I I was taking too much B12, which I was at the time. And so that was part of oh, the that's reason right. you for have the that bumps. Allergy where if you take too much B12, you get I get bumps yeah, on my face. You get face. an allergic response. It's, I don't think that's universal at all. But no, some but people the, have a, yeah, can't have too and much. And he knew that. And when we were interviewing him, I kept him on afterwards. And I'm like, Jack, before you hang up, can I ask you something? And and so we were crowdsourcing everything from like our, our guests and our listeners. So now 10 years later, let's crowdsource alcohol drinks. 
<laughs> Glad we're moving up in the world. Desperate okay. times. Here are your call for desperate of which, measures. Here's your friendly reminder to vote. That's all. Vote.org. Yes. If you need information on voting, please vote. If you're vote. actually on if you're on the fence about voting, then I, I invite you to email me at and my name has no E. <laughs> Jasmine, no E. J-A-S-M-I-N at ourhenhouse.org. If you don't know if you're gonna vote, email me, please, so that we can talk about it. So now let's move on to our henhouse supports vegan businesses, which is a program that we started also at the beginning of this awful pandemic, because we noticed that so many businesses were faltering and were were flailing and and suffering and so we wanted to create a way to do our little part to give back and so we have these announcements that we make for businesses at least one black owned business every week that are there because you told us about it thank you for telling us about it or because we know about it or because Jen found it and a few weeks ago when we were Jen Riley our director of operations when we were talking about Jen, we were like, Jen, stop putting only D.C. area businesses on. And now we never have any D.C. area businesses on. And I feel bad. So, Jen, when you listen to this podcast to review it, please put one back because I miss it. Oh, my God. For heaven's sake. Okay, Maya's Cookies, Black owned business of the week. Maya's Cookies dot com. Maya's Cookies was founded in 2015 by Maya Madsen. And from the classic to the unique and forward-thinking flavors, such as chocolate chip s'mores and marble fudge, every flavor has a story grounded in Maya's travels, her memories, and her experiences. Alongside providing the highest quality product that appeals to everyone, Maya's Cookies is committed to superior customer service and community engagement with a focus on youth and underserved communities. Maya's Cookies is based in San Diego, but ships nationwide. Again, it's mayascookies.com. And by the way, I've had them. Because of my Veg News life, which is one of my lives, one of the I wish lives I had I've, one right now. I lead, but I don't. And All right, so, our second uh, business. Wait, is- can I just say something? Our second business that you're you don't even know this, but I have a strong connection to the second business. So go ahead and do you want to do both I'll- announcements? Yeah, I do. Can I? <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you. Our second business. Jasmine is- loves to get airtime. <laughs> That's all I can say. If you oh li- my god! If you listen to the podcast regularly, you must you must realize that Very Jasmine end. loves airtime. It's like that uh, after the presidential debates when the New York Times says how many air, how much airtime each candidate got. Like, we're going to have <laughs> how much airtime I got and you got. Anyhow, uh-huh. uh, so Vegetarian is uh, vegetarian.com. It's V-E-G-E-T-A-R-Y-N.com. So I know Vegetarian because Vegetarian and Veg News share an office and have for a few years. So anyway, I, I'm a big, big fan. A vegetarian is a vegan woman-owned company offering sweatshop-free, fair trade, eco-friendly clothes, tote bags, hair accessories, jewelry, and lots more. Owner Taryn Razgin, which is the person I know. And create- also explains the name, vegetarian. Ter- her right, name is Taryn. Vegetarian. So good, right? Creates cool designs that promote the vegan lifestyle with fun and lighthearted messaging. So Check it out. Follow her on, on social, vegetarian.com. And hi, Taryn. <laughs> nice to not talk to you because I'm on the podcast and you're on the other end of it. Anyway, thanks for letting me do both of the announcements today. Why don't you announce Stephanie since I did oh, all of I'd that? I'd be happy to. My interview this week is with Stephanie Boyles Griffin. She serves as the science and policy director for the Bots Tiber Institute for Wildlife Fertility Control, which is a nonprofit organization that works to advance the use of effective, sustainable fertility control methods to mitigate human-wildlife conflicts and promote coexistence worldwide. 
She is also the senior scientist for the Wildlife Protection Department at the Humane Society of the United States, where she works with teams responsible for promoting humane, innovative, and sustainable wildlife management policies, practices, and procedures. And you'll hear my interview with Stephanie right after this. The Our Hen House podcast is brought to you in part by Forager Project. California crafted since 2013, Forager Project is an organic, plant-based, family-owned and operated food company creating innovative, delicious-tasting products sourced from nature's finest ingredients. That's nuts, seeds, ancient grains, and fruits and vegetables. Crafted by fellow foragers in its own unique, purpose-built creamery, the only 100% organic, plant-based facility of its kind, Forager Project's family of foods include totally organic and 100% vegan yogurts, nut milks, sour cream, kefirs, shakes, and butter. Let me tell you about Forager Project's vote campaign, which I'm especially excited about. Forager recently announced its commitment to help cultivate democracy. During the next month, Forager Project will be shifting packaging on its yogurts, kefirs, and milks to encourage consumers nationwide to get involved and vote this November. And they're launching a broader effort with organic and paid advertising to encourage everyone to vote this November 3rd. I'll be voting, and I sure hope you will be too. They want you to cultivate democracy and vote. So get involved at foragerproject.com slash vote and follow Forager Project at at Forager Project. Welcome back to our hen house, Stephanie. Thank you for having me, Marianne. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. We, you know, we don't have enough interviews about wildlife in spite of the fact that I think everybody listening is probably pretty passionate about wildlife. But sometimes it seems like the one issue that we can't do that much about, you know, in so many other areas of animal use or animal exploitation, it's kind of a simple. It's just a matter of getting it done, getting people to stop eating them, getting people to stop wearing them. We know what needs to be done, but we just need to somehow uh, solve that problem of getting people to do it. But I've always thought there were a couple of issues that it's just not like that, that there are actually difficult questions about what we should be doing. Animal research is one of them. And and wildlife management, I think, is the really tough one. And I'll say, quote unquote, management, because it's not always manageable. <laughs> it's not always clear what the goals are, how to weigh the interests, what we should do. And, and that's why I'm so glad to be having this conversation with you, because these are the kind of questions that you seem to deal with every day in what you do. Right. Yeah, I've been working in the sort of the field of human wildlife conflict mitigation and coexistence for about 20 years. I don't I don't know exactly how I fell into it. I think I've always been living that life, wanting to be a good steward to wildlife everywhere I go. But it never occurred to me that I would become sort of an ambassador, sort the um, the the advocate for uh, a, a person that was speaking of of peace building with our, our natural world and being that sort of in between explaining our wild neighbors to uh, other people that may not understand or appreciate them as much as people like you and me and others do. It, it's a tough, but just such a moving world that you live in to, to try to fix some of these conflicts, some of which we don't even really understand or I don't anyway. 
So the last time you were on, we focused on a very specific problem. Mm-hmm. It, we, we talked about white tailed deer mostly and the whole, which is a huge problem, but you know, it's very specific within this world. And I know you do a lot of uh, work with fertility control mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the issue that we're pretty familiar with, the suburban and exurban areas where deer are considered a nuisance, where there are deer car accidents, where there's a lot of conflict around them. And you were talking about where you were with fertility control as a way of dealing with some of those problems. So can we just start, I don't want to reiterate everything we said there because people can go back and listen, but can you kind of bring us up to date on where things stand? Uh, Where is fertility control being used and how is it working? Right. As an organization, I I work for the Humane Society of the United States as their senior wildlife scientist in our wildlife protection department. But I also serve as a science and policy director for uh, an organization called the Botstever Institute for Wildlife Fertility Control, which is based in Media, Pennsylvania. My role is very similar for both. You know, I I try to explain to people uh, why human wildlife conflicts exist and then steer them in the direction of trying to learn to coexist with them by providing them with some real tools in order to do that, not just encouraging them to coexist, but just showing them how to and and how to tolerate uh, our, our wild neighbors a little bit more than they may already. So with, with respect to deer, for instance, we as an organization try to start by teaching people what the conflicts are. A lot of people assume that deer, quote unquote, overpopulation is the problem and therefore reducing the number of deer in a particular area is the, is the solution. We really encourage people to take a more holistic approach to number one, identifying the, the problems that they may associate with deer in their community to make sure, first of all, that it's the deer that are causing them. There are lots of animals that could be, for instance, browsing on their landscaping and that they see as a problem, rabbits and other animals. So first and foremost, what the issues are, and then figuring out what the best solutions to those are. People assume that it's reducing the population in some way, either via lethal or non-lethal methods or a combination of both, but that's not always the case. So we first start with helping people identify what the issues are and then how deer may may be contributing to them and then figuring out what the best solutions to those problems are. And in some cases, that, that solution may include something like fertility control. And then the answer, your second question is, there are several fertility control research projects going on in the United States right now. They're ongoing. Some of them are in the process of wrapping up in places like, you may have heard about the one that's going on in Staten Island, uh, New York where a large percentage of the buck population is being vasectomized, and that's uh, work that's being supported by the, the New York City Parks Department. And then the HSUS has two field projects in New York uh, State, one in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, and the other in Head of Harbor, uh, which is on Long Island. And then there's several projects that have been completed. There's one in Fairfax City, Virginia, another one in a place called Clifton, which is a section of the of downtown Cincinnati, San Jose, the villages uh, in San Jose, California, and then a project that HSUS wrapped up many years ago on Fripp Island in South Carolina. So lots of different research projects going on. And then there have been a couple of actual you know, management projects as well. So there's a lot going on in this field. There are a couple of states right now where you can apply for a permit to use fertility control to manage deer. Maryland is one of them. 
So um, that's sort of the progress report from when we last spoke, which was probably a four or five years ago. Yeah, I think it was 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and one of the things that we talked about at that time was an open system versus a closed system. And right. most of the work that had been done to date, and I guess some of the work that's ongoing, it's basically on islands, like mm-hmm. Fire Island was a big one. And now, right. you're, now you're talking about Staten Island. You mentioned Hastings, but I think it was kind of just getting going at that time. That's right. And that was one of the issues because that is not a closed system. That's mm-hmm. just, you know, an area where uh, you, you would figure if, if you reduce the deer population, you'll just get more deer from somewhere else. That's right. How has that situation been playing out? Does, is this something that works on the continent as well as on islands? So some of the preliminary data that we're seeing coming out, and, and I would not classify Staten Island as a closed system the way I would like Fire Island or Fripp Island. Those are definitely closed or semi-closed systems, but Staten Island isn't. So those, I think we would classify as free-roaming uh, animals in an open system, and certainly Hastings on Hudson. And some of the preliminary data that we're seeing out of Staten Island, for instance, shows a pretty significant drop in fawning rates, and then that is coinciding with a drop in the actual population there. But the other significant thing that they're seeing there, if you read some of the newspaper articles that are coming out about it, and things like the New York Times and others, is that they're seeing a drop in deer vehicle collisions. So when you ask, why are we even doing this? Remember I was saying about what is the actual problem that you're trying to solve? If it's not reducing the deer population, it's reducing deer vehicle collisions because that's one of the main uh, concerns that citizens and redis- residents of Staten Island had. So it's the fact that there's evidence to suggest that the drop in the, po- the deer population because of the fertility control program that they're they're conducting there is having an effect on a conflict that is the, the main point of concern with the citizens there. That's really, for me, sort of the take-home message. And, and just continue to watch the data that is coming from that project to see if that if those deer vehicle collisions continue to go down as the population continues to go down. Yeah, that's interesting because my next question was kind of going to be, how do we define progress? Exactly. And, and so you have to like kind of define what the problem is and you've identified the serious problem as opposed to people who just care about the rhododendrons and don't want to plant something else or whatever. Well, you know what I you know how I'd say is there's no problem that isn't serious because it's serious to the person that's concerned about it. So that would that's what I would say when we're meeting with people well, and you're discussing much more, with the options. You're much well, more you're much nicer than <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess you have to be. <laughs> so what going back to sort of the planning process and figuring out what the problem is, we also like people to start thinking about what success looks like, having a vision for what success looks like. And to also, with deer continuing to live in their communities, what it looks like with deer and not without deer, because deer are a part of our communities. We're trying to, we're trying to minimize impacts and not uh, eradicate deer populations, because there's usually a, a strong proportion of the population there that really appreciates them. Even some of the people that complain about them maybe uh, browsing on some of their ornamental landscaping, they still like having them. They want to live in peace with them and find a way to do that. And that's where organizations like ours and others, that's sort of our mission is to try and find that balance in, in using humane, effective and sustainable approaches to doing that. Yeah, that's really good to hear because sometimes that is not the impression I get. I feel like so often 
when animals become a quote unquote problem for whatever reason, people just start to hate them. You know, they speak about right. them in these angry tones as if they're evil and just horrible. And right. they don't have this like, well, this is a problem. Maybe we can find a solution. The deer are lovely, but I don't want them doing whatever. Uh, right. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's not the only attitude you're getting other than from the animal rights activists who, of course, care about the deer. Right. So when they become a problem, they don't automatically become hated by everybody. No, uh, I, I do think that in a community, there tend to be some squeaky wheels that get the grease. And so the impression from people, if those are the people that show up for property owner association meetings or homeowner association meetings or city council meetings, that everybody feels that way. But I bet if you did a public survey of, of attitudes about deer, it would be probably about 50-50, you know, in most communities. So you have 50% of the people that maybe think there are too many and then the other 50 think they don't have enough and that they really enjoy having them there, which is is the challenge for us because uh, then they're at an impasse. So they can't do anything if they were to take a vote on whether they should, for instance, kill deer or to or uh, or not kill them. They they wouldn't be able to make a decision. So we're, that's one of the reasons why it's really important at the beginning when when a community identifies a a, pro a problem that they that some people may have with a, a population of animals. Uh, if it, it may be deer, it may be another animal that there be a really collaborative and inclusive process of identifying, as I said, what the issues actually are and not speculating on what they are and what animal may be causing it. And then really focusing on what might be the root of the problem. Maybe the root of the problem is you've planted something really, really exceptionally attractive to them and you're not doing anything to protect your property that like just strategic fencing or some sort of liquid re repellent or something. And if you did that, you probably wouldn't have a problem with, with the deer living in your area, but it's getting people to understand that these animals are responding to an invitation. They're also responding to landscape changes that we're making that are making our communities overwhelmingly wonderful places for them to live. So you can't blame them for wanting to coexist with us because we're giving them every reason in the world to want to. There's just a little bit of effort on our part to share the world with them. And I think we're going to get more out of that, that coexistence relationship than constantly vilifying them and make them out to be you know, what some people would refer to as pests when they are part of our, our native wildlife. And we should, like I said, be sharing the world with them. Well, I, I really hope that that's true. And you are right about squeaky wheels. I mean, as we all know, at this moment in time, squeaky wheels are definitely, they can dominate. <laughs> they can definitely dominate. There's one more question I want to ask. I mean, as I said, I wanted to move on to some broader issues, but just first, you know, reiterate what and revisit the topic of the deer. But there's just one more question. You mentioned that the project in Staten Island involves vasectomies. Mm -hmm. And I know that we spoke the last time about the contraceptive in use at that time, which I think is still in use. Is it PZP? Is that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, PZP or Zonostat H, that's the brand name for Which, it. Mm -hmm. you know, only the listeners of this podcast and other people like us would care about the fact <laughs> that it was made from pig ovaries. And at the time, you anticipated that, that there might be the possibility of taking pigs out of the process. That's I'd be right. interested to know, is that still true? And also, obviously, you've moved on to other ways of sterilizing, as you mentioned, with vasectomies. So can you just like talk to that a little bit? Sure. So 
HSUS is currently working in partnership with Purdue University to develop a uh, vaccine that would be a recombinant or synthetic vaccine that would not uh, require the use of, you know, a byproduct of the, the pork industry, which is, which is ovaries and the oocytes that are in them. So uh, we're working with them to develop this recombinant vaccine. But in addition to that, we want to create a longer acting vaccine so that over time it reduces the costs associated with using fertility control agent to manage urban deer populations or wild horse and burrow populations out west, even African elephant populations in places like South Africa. So there are lots of different reasons why we wanted to embark on this, on this project with uh, a university like Purdue. So that's one. So that work is ongoing. And if people want to read a little bit more about it on their website, they can go to uh, www.humanesociety.org and just uh, in the search engine, put in Purdue and it, it should pop up. It's called the Next Generation Feasible Project. And then with respect to other methods, so immunocontraception is using the animal's uh, immune system to create antibodies that in some way has an impact on the animal's reproductive system and, and the, the function of it, but in a humane and effective way. So there are two immunocontraception vaccines that are currently registered for use in, in the United States. One we've already talked about, Zonestat H, and the other one is Gonacon. But there are some other surgical methods that are being tested in field. But honestly, these are being done as surrogates for longer acting vaccines like the one we're talking about that, that Purdue is working to develop. Just to see what happens when you completely suspend reproduction entirely. And one way to test what that does to population growth rates and populations generally over time is to do something to permanently sterilize an animal either by a surgical method or a non-surgical method. And there are, there are researchers that are also looking for non-surgical ways of sterilizing cats and dogs, as well as animals like wild horses that live long lives, and they live in very remote, rugged landscapes in the West where it may be difficult to boost them. You know, we, we can find urban deer in urban areas quite easily, especially once we tag them and we know who they are. Those animals don't live as long. They live, you know, five to seven years, sometimes a little bit longer. But wild horses, especially if they're not foaling every year, they can live, you know, almost 20 years and sometimes more. So the fewer times we need to find and treat that mare, the more efficacious and cost-effective a fertility control agent would be. So there are researchers right now working on a long-acting agent that they could inject into a mare once and either not have to treat her for a very long time again, maybe five to 10 years, or maybe ever, maybe it would, would uh, permanently sterilize her without having to do anything like surgery or something like that. So the science is still very much in process about developing all of and then these there are things. Contraceptives. I mean, remember there are currently registered oral contraceptives for animals like commensal rodents, like rats in urban areas, and then pigeons. So those are two EPA-registered oral contraceptives that are being used right now to manage pigeons and commensal rodents in the United States right now. Yeah, I actually was hoping to talk a little bit about pigeons and rats and those animals. But before we get to that, just uh, I just wanted you mentioned that you're now working with the Botsteber Institute. Is, did I pronounce that right? Yes, you did. And they're focused on this is a worldwide issue, clearly. And 
in general, I'm just curious to know, like more in a big, you know, we focused on white-tailed deer in in suburban mm-hmm. America, which is a issue that's pretty easy to understand. Like, but even though it's actually hard to understand, it's easier <laughs> than a lot of these issues. So in general, when do wild animals or perhaps feral animals become a, a quote unquote problem that has to be addressed? When does that happen? Is this all right, I'm going to go on for a little bit. <laughs> Just forgive me. Because <laughs> I've always heard that wild animals, maybe not feral animals, but wild animals by and large adjust their own populations to fit their habitat. If food is scarce, they reproduce less. If food is plentiful, they reproduce more. I'm wondering if that's true. And if it is true, clearly the problem is that habitats are more favorable to animals than than for our purposes than they want for their purposes. They're right. fine. Like the deer in particular are fine eating our shrubberies. We just don't want them to. So I guess my big question is, when do we know it's a problem and that has to be addressed? Wow, that's a tough, that's a tough one because it changes and depends on the species and the context. So let's, let's talk about urban deer very, very briefly. So in urban areas, generally, it's a social carrying capacity issue rather than biological, right? Exactly. That's a that's so in so that well case, said. it true it, that that is truly the case. Rarely do animals reach biological carrying capacity, and we're starting to see you know die offs because of that. And it, but but in in other contexts where we're doing something to alter that that ecological balance, for instance, if out west, you have um, you know a prey population that is managed without human intervention by uh, wolves and cougars and coyotes, and you're doing something to remove a substantial proportion of that predator population from that system. Well, then the those prey are not living in balance at that point, but it's because we're doing something mm-hmm. to interfere with that balance. So does that make sense? So in that case, it is a biological carrying capacity issue because the systems that he, have evolved to keep each other in check, we're doing something to to impact it in some way. And that therefore there is not a, a predator there keeping an elk population or an antelope population pronghorn population in check. I'm just using that. I'm, not, I'm just being, uh, you know, this is just hypothetical. I'm not saying that that's the case out there, but if you were to do something like that, you know, that that's what would potentially um, happen. So two different contexts, two different reasons why something may be happening and why there may be a conflict there. But then, you know, you have situations like elephant populations in South Africa, where most of the elephants are in these closed game preserves. And if they are to venture outside of those game preserves, they become a um, a concern to people that are living a very agrarian life, and uh, they can come in and damage their crops. But then we go back to is fertility control the solution in that situation? Maybe, maybe not. You've got people that are building these really sophisticated beehive systems that are triggered when an elephant attempts to enter their their crops. If the elephant pushes against the wire, it causes all of the hives that they have established on that wire to emerge. And elephants don't like bees. <laughs> they don't like the sound of them. They don't like them stinging mm-hmm. them. And so it's not necessarily, let's get a perfect example of people assuming that you need to do a population mitigation strategy there when something more site specific 
actually doing something, protect your truck crops from elephants may be the better way to go. So not saying that fertility control isn't, we just like to, for people to think of it in the context of first figuring out what the quote unquote problem may be, and then working back to what the best solutions to that problem might be. And in some cases, it is density dependent and doing something like fertility control as part of an integrated approach, when you're also combining that with site-specific mitigation, it would, would, be a good, would be a good strategy. I would assume with elephants too, I mean, just the fact that you started out by saying they mostly live in preserves is the fact that they've lost so much habitat and that oh, that yeah. must be happening to animals everywhere. I mean, we know it's happening to animals everywhere. Even their population density problem isn't because they breed too much. It's because right. we're taking away their land. Right. I saw something on Facebook the other day where the, a deer was crossing the road and it said, is the deer crossing the road or is the road crossing the forest? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So what is the risk if you do decide that, you know, it's not just a bee problem, but Mm -hmm. there really are, quote unquote, too many elephants because Mm -hmm. now there are more people living in that area Mm -hmm. and you enclose them in uh, in preserves and perhaps their populations start to grow. And what happens like if, if you start using fertility control do you mean mm-hmm. are you able to maintain a viable breeding pool so that you mm-hmm. still have good populations of elephants and how how hard is this i mean we're just talking about one incredibly beloved species if we mm-hmm. start having to do this for all of the species like how much can we actually manage the wild right yeah and there's also the idea of of, of first doing no harm you know keeping in mind that we want to go into a situation first doing no harm And with elephants, you only want to be thinking about interfering with a natural process as a method of last resort when the only other option is actually removing individual animals, you know, lethally um, or or removing them and placing them in captivity, God forbid, to, to solve the problem. So first, you know, method of last resort first, if we can't mitigate the situation with something site specific or or some other options. So first and then second. We want to do it in a way that as wildlife managers leaves us with options. And one way to do that is to use something that's reversible like DZP. So let's take South Africa, for instance, and these closed, these, when I say wild preserves, these are enormous stretches of land. I don't want it to make sound like it's like, you know, an enclosure that you would see at a zoo right. or something. Right, right. But the, they're still limiting for animals that move hundreds of miles, sometimes many, many, many miles a day, you know, these are still closed systems. For that reason, eventually they can, you know, outgrow them if there's not something to limit their population growth. You can use something like PZP. Uh, In a lot of cases, this can be administered from a helicopter to cows that are due for a booster. They don't uh, treat them every year for the rest of their life. They treat them for several years and then they give them a break so they have a chance to contribute to the gene pool and then they put them back on it again. So it is done in a very managed way, but it's because these animals are living in large but still finite systems and for uh, the good of the land and the good of the animals as a whole, it's a far better approach than what reserves were doing up until a very short time ago, and that was calling them. Yeah, actually, I mean, that is really what we have to be thinking of, not just is this is this a good idea, but what are the what's other the alternative? Ideas? Yeah. yeah, what's the alternative? And that's what I always say to people. That's been a huge issue with wild horses because 
there's been controversy within the the animal rights movement, I think, regarding whether stopping wild horses from reproducing, which I think is, you know, really, correct me if I'm wrong, but has caught on a lot more as a way of managing wild horse populations. There's been such huge progress made in the the wild horse um, management sort of world on the acceptance of fertility control as a primary means of managing these animals long-term. Not to say that you don't have to do any removals. Our goal is to do very few removals and be able to use fertility control primarily as a means for managing population growth uh, in those those rugged and remote Western uh, landscapes that I was talking about earlier. So that is one part of this field. And I think it's one that's really starting to gain momentum. People are starting to get it, that that balance that we're attempting to achieve, the thriving ecological balance that the 1971 Wild Horse and Borough Protection Act called for, and the, the very vital role that fertility control is going to play in creating that balance and allowing those animals to stay on the range where they belong. I know that there's been some controversy, I guess. And this is, I think this is a question that came up the last time we spoke. And it's a question that always, I'm sure comes up all the time, not just for wild horses, but reproducing is what animals do. Like it's like, I mean, it's what humans do as well. Like it's, it's a hugely important part of life. So how do we think of, I, I don't even know what my question is exactly. How do we think about it, that we're stopping these animals doing from what animals do? Like, I noticed in your bio that you have a degree in philosophy. Like this is really sort of a philosophical question or a really deep question about our role here and our role vis-a-vis animals. So how do you feel about that? And and that's why I said method of last resort. You know, we really want these animals to maintain their natural processes, their social groupings and behaviors to the greatest extent that we can. And the only reason we would ever want to interfere with that is if the alternative was ending their lives and separating them from their families and ending those social bonds in a permanent way. And so we just see this as the lesser of doing that. I I know it sounds counterintuitive for somebody that's the science and policy director for a wildlife fertility control institute, begging people not to jump to wanting to use fertility control all the time, because most of what we try to do is educate the public on the role it can play when it's appropriate and necessary, and then talking to people about when it's not appropriate and necessary. If you can solve these issues with site-specific mitigation strategies, not only is that the best way in the short term to solve your problem, it avoids the cost and the effort and the impact on the individual animal in carrying out something like a fertility control program. But if it's the only option, save actually removing that animal lethally, then we think that it's a it's a pretty good trade-off for that individual animal and their families and their social groupings. I mean, that's how I kind of see it. But mm-hmm. no, it's not the first thing that we want to jump to. That's why for any context, it doesn't matter whether it's African elephants, brumbies in Australia, koalas in Australia, kangaroos in Australia. These are all animals where fertility control is either being used or it's being tested to be used to mitigate human wildlife conflicts. And we always stri- you know, stress that you go into this first 
going through sort of a framework process of figuring out what the conflicts are. And then, like I said, working backwards to figure out what the best solutions are. And, and in some cases, maybe fertility control will be a component of it, but not always. So method of, you know, any kind of population mitigation should be a method of last resort. But do you fear that because of the powers that be on the other side, I mean, I'm thinking of with, obviously with wild horses, the cattle industry, I'm sure this is a huge issue with kangaroos in um, Australia, that there are very powerful people who would just as soon get rid of them all. And now that this method exists, uh, that there will be pressure to just get rid of them all. We hear that from time to time from from folks that are afraid of some of the permanent tools that are being suggested. But, and it all depends on species and context. With wild horses, the public has made it very clear to members of Congress what they want. And they want wild horses to continue to live wild and free on our public lands. And they don't want them sterilized, all of them. They don't want them eradicated. They don't want them to be mass euthanized and they don't want them to be sent to slaughter. The jury is kind of out on that. That is not going to change in the United States. Whereas same animal, but different country in context, Brumbies, the public attitudes towards Brumbies is very different in Australia. I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know what Brumbies are. A wild horse. It's an Australian term for a wild horse. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So same animal, Different name, but same animal. These are animals that over the generations have become wild in uh, Australia and they compete with other other uh, native animals for uh, resources. And the way that Australians generally feel about them is very different than uh, how people feel about our wild horses in the U.S., but even that is changing and there are sociologists that are starting to document public perception changes about Brumbies and other, you know, quote unquote, non-native animals in Australia over time. And as public sentiment and attitudes and values about those animals change, wildlife managers are going to be forced to manage those animals using different methods because the the public is going to compel them to do so. and, And really, when it gets down to it, the field of wildlife fertility control was born out of the shift in public attitudes from utilitarianism towards towards animals, towards mutualism. There's a reason why the field that I sort of live and work in, and, and so do my colleagues at the HSUS and other organizations, is human wildlife conflict and coexistence. And it's because there are conflicts because we are developing land, we are continuing to have conflicts with animals because human populations are expanding and we are expanding into wildlife habitat. They're trying to figure out how to adapt to us. We're trying to figure out how to adapt to them. But then at the same time, you have societies, U.S. included, that are shifting towards this attitude of animals as being something to be used towards coexistence and sharing the world and, and mutually respecting one another. So that's that's what this whole field, I feel like, has been born out of, is this rapidly shifting societal attitude towards sharing the world and coexisting, not only with animals, but with each other. God, I hope you're right. Like your vision of the world is just what I needed right now, Stephanie. No, there's <laughs> actually a study that, that's called the America Wildlife Values Project, and you can look it up. They're showing that in states across the United States that there's this rapid shift 
from utilitarianism with respect to wild animals towards mutualism. And in some states, it's happening much faster than others. And you can actually look at a map where they actually have color-coded states that are more utilitarian and traditional to states that are leaning towards are already very strongly mutualistic. It's pretty fascinating report, and I encourage our listeners to look it up. It's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, we could all use something that would make us feel a little bit better about the world. What about <laughs> feral animals? I think most people listening probably understand the difference between wild animals and feral animals. But for everybody, mm-hmm. there's some crossover. Like I never knew pigeons were, or at least the pigeons, rock pigeons that we see in all over the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know they were feral animals, I guess, right. sort of. But certainly cats in Australia, you know, get a really, really hard time because they Australia is particularly devoted to caring for its native wildlife, which is completely understandable. Oh, and street dogs too, street dogs. There's all these animals that are kind of like in between. Should they be wiped out? When should a feral population be wiped out? Ever or never or? (laughs) You know what? Uh, It's such a complicated issue. If you do any sort of research on cats and dogs in different parts of the world, these street dogs and and street cats that live there uh, in places like Italy or, or places like India, And if you were to do a social survey of a population of humans that live with them, there are so many different types of public attitudes about what, if anything, should be done. For a lot of people, this is simply the way it is, that that this is normal for them. The thought of attempting to go and eradicate all of these animals would be unheard of because they see themselves as being in the same place as as the animals are in a lot of these places. Like that right. seems like a really sensible attitude. And, and you know, from our perspective, you know, if you're working with people that are trying to come up with these non-surgical sterilization methods for animals like street dogs and, and cats in these third world countries, they're also trying to come up with ways to do disease prevention at the same time. So you're kind of doing, you know, baking two cakes in one oven. And when you get that chance to handle that animal, maybe just the one time, because the chance of that animal going into a trap twice in its life pretty darn low. You know, a cat or a dog um, that uh, has lived on the streets all of their lives, they're pretty wary of some humans to begin with and new things. If you even happen to be lucky enough to get them into a trap and are able to surgically or uh, sterilize them through some sort of non-surgical method and be able to treat them, you know, with a rabies vaccine or something like that at the same time, the chance of you getting your hands on them again is pretty low. So doing all you can to make that animal's life as as good as it can be in the place that you find them in, you know, we're trying to combine approaches here and do as much good as we can with the opportunity that we have to interact with the animal as we can. I'm talking about some of these issues in a theoretical way, as if it's all possible, as if we could have control of these. And of course, you're bringing back the reality that, that even though we do have these new methods, we're very far from being able to completely control these populations and do with them what we would, but we're getting closer. And it certainly is things we should be talking about, I think, what the goals are. So, But you know what? When you think about it in, in this context, I don't think I want to because being a wildlife biologist, that, that's what I love about wildlife is wildness. And so I only want to be interfering, if you want to call it that, when I'm being forced to do so because it's either that or the animal is going to be removed. You know, their life is going to be 
taken. And so I think when you go at it, that approach, leaving as much wild as we can and not interfering until there's a situation that is justified. We, we justify some sort of action and, and we've gone through the process of, like I said, figuring out what the issue is, figuring out what the best solutions are. And then if some, some form of population management is required, that it be done in the most humane, effective and sustainable way possible. Well, one of the animals who almost everyone has always since forever agreed should be managed or and or a lot of people would say eradicated are one that you mentioned before, and that's rats. And even I don't want rats living in my house. (laughs) I think that's a pretty universal feeling. So is immunocontraception going to be or is it already being the answer that has eluded everyone since the beginning of time? And what is the real goal here? All right. So that's a great question. So with commensal rodents, I always explain to people that they exist because of something that we're doing that we probably shouldn't be. And that's providing an indirect or direct food source to them because we're not, we're not picking up our trash the way we should be, for instance. Most of these populations live in these urban centers because it's really hard to control where people discard food and other things that rats can use as food, even things like dog feces, for instance, in a responsible way. So those those populations become established because of us. There's a reason why rats like living near us. They can't live without us, basically. So we are making their existence possible because of something we are doing or we're failing to do. So number one, the number one way to manage rats is through an integrated approach in, in controlling what, what we're giving them basically to, to live off of. But a way to supplement that is through use of some sort of oral contraceptive to limit population growth over time. Like any other approach, it has to be part of an integrated management because uh, that's not the fact that they exist is not the root cause of why they exist. It's usually something, like I said, that we're doing that's making it possible for them to exist in an area. And so we have to figure out what it is we're doing or not doing that's causing them to be attracted to our homes. Or is there a place that they're getting into our homes that we need to exclude by uh, hiring somebody that's a professional to figure out what those places are and to exclude them for us? And then removing anything around our homes or our properties and our communities that is attractive to them and that they're able to actually, you know, thrive on. That would be my say with respect to commensal rodents. Yeah. And as usual, it's all our fault. Uh, <laughs> most everything is. <laughs> and, and, and also, though I know all populations are different and respond differently, but I think rats prove beyond any doubt that lethal solutions just don't work. We've been killing rats since the beginning of time, as yes. many rats as we could, and we have more rats than ever. So it's funny when I when I talked recently, I did a, a little interview with uh, one of the co-founders of Senestech, which is the company that makes the oral contraceptive for commensal rodents, Contrafest. That that's one of the things that she said. You know that that you will never see uh, a, an animal that is more that is better suited to reproducing. You cannot keep up with the reproductive rate of a rat population. So one of the ways that to to mitigate it is, of course, all the things I already said, but then as a, a last means of control is to give them some sort of oral contraceptive to keep them from breeding because they can breed their way out of almost anything. They always have. 
Yeah, they're very talented. So many animals are so <laughs> they're just talented. prolific. Yeah, you know they're they're really prolific. Um, but as you say, we can control it. As everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I have mice, which I would love to not have, but I never seem to come, you know, solve the solve the quote unquote problem completely. And I have come to the conclusion that they're not just prolific; they're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are yes. so much smarter than I am. No matter what uh, I do, they find a way around it. They are. Anyway, thank you. So I could talk to you forever because there are a lot of species and I want to know what's going to happen to every single one of them. But You'll but, have to have me back on again sometime <laughs> soon. Yes. Yes. This was really fascinating and I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining us today, Stephanie. Thank you, Marianne. It was my pleasure. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story, I'm not entirely clear about the meaning of this story, but I'm pretty sure, and I'm pretty sure it is, it's kind of staggering. All right, this is from drovers.com, which of course is a meat industry site. Green Plains exits cattle feeding business. And Green Plains is apparently some huge outfit that has has feedlots, and they're based in Omaha. And they have apparently sold the remaining 50% interest in Green Plains Cattle Company for $80 million. So the cattle company was the subsidiary that owned the feedlots, and the buyers are these investment funds that include AGR Partners and Stepstone Group. But this is why they say they sold this subsidiary that owns these feedlots. With the sale of our remaining ownership in Green Plains Cattle Company, combined with our recent quarterly distribution and earnings bonus from performance of the cattle business, we have added approximately $96 million of liquidity to our balance sheet, said Todd Becker, president and CEO of Green Plains, Inc. This sale allows us to redeploy capital to support our long-term objective of building a technology-focused biorefining platform, producing sustainable, high-value, high-protein ingredients the market needs. Well, it sure sounds to me like they're getting into the quote-unquote fake meat business uh, and getting out of the uh, quote-unquote dead animal business. That is pretty cool. I mean, like I say, I'm trying to just interpret this somewhat confusing, well, maybe not confusing, but this language that that isn't really crystal clear if you don't know what they're talking about. A biorefining platform. Technology-focused biorefining platform. What the, what else could that mean? Anyway, let's keep an eye on that. Apparently, they're major players, and uh, they're getting out of the business. I don't blame them. Good move, Green Plains. All right, our, our second story here is from meetingplace.com. It's the, the meat business column by Gregory Bloom. And the name of this entry is, Why Doesn't the Meat Industry Use More Celebs for Marketing? There's a pretty simple answer that comes to my mind, and is that 
who would want to stake their career on advertising meat? You know, it's not, it, it seems like a pretty risky business for a celebrity to get in the news and talk about how much they love uh, eating dead animals. But, you know, obviously a lot of people like meat. Not everybody is me. So it is interesting that they're having trouble here. And this is what, what Gregory has to say about it. Our plant-based competitors, you know, I feel like we've moving up, moved up in the world a bit about how they're identifying us. Now we're not fake meat purveyors. We're plant-based competitors, always working hard to be more competitive, are coming up with even better tasting ingredients and are now displacing meat at retail meat counters nationwide. They're effective at using paid celebrity endorsements. Just check out their websites and YouTube channels and you'll experience their powerful, iconic marketing. They are kicking our tails when it comes to using celebrity endorsements to influence consumers. Well, I would say that anxieties are rising very, very high here. And, uh, you know, it, to me, it's easy to see why celebrities would be happy to, to get paid to advertise plant-based competitors because, you know, there's a lot of virtue there. Everybody's going to love them. Advertising uh, slaughter? Eh, maybe not so much. All right. He does mention two celebrities who uh, have been signed with McDonald's. And so they are willing to put their names on this crap. Travis Scott, rapper, and Colombian reggaeton celebrity Jay Balvin. But other than that, apparently nobody. So he asks, why doesn't the beef industry still use celebrities like Matthew McConaughey for promoting beef? Did he go vegan? <laughs> Sadly, I doubt that Matthew McConaughey has gone vegan, but you know, you never know. That is a sign of anxiety. The only reason that he would not want to do beef commercials is, is that he went vegan. But you know, he thinks there are many other celebrities who would be great. And his solution here is, can we just admit that in terms of marketing we haven't been keeping up with the plant-based competition. Well, you know, maybe that's because what you have to market is not so appealing. All right, finally, this is uh, from our friends over at Plant-Based News. This is about a new documentary called Kiss the Ground. Uh, is documentary Kiss the Ground just a last-ditch effort to keep meat relevant? It sounds like it is. I'll tell you about it. All right, this is by Simon Hill and Nicholas Carter. Simon Hill is apparently about to come out with a book, and he also has a website already and a blog on this topic called Plant Proof. And he is really concerned. He's watched this, this new movie, Kiss the Ground, and he doesn't like it much. Well, he likes a bunch of things about it. He's interviewed the filmmakers, but he doesn't like three things about it. And they sound pretty big. They're ba this movie is basically about regenerative agriculture. And as we all know, regenerative agriculture is just touted by many as a reason to eat meat, even though there are very, very good principles behind regenerative agriculture, and we do want to be regenerating the earth. It's just, you know, it ends up just being about meat, 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 and shit, 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 because they just want to have the animals so they can poop on the ground. And uh, they think that's the solution to everything. That's my, <laughs> that's my concise description of, of the common interpretation of regenerative agriculture. Well, there are three ways that he thinks this uh, movie is falling short. One, claims that holistic grazing can reverse climate change. Well, that does sound really ridiculous. And he goes on to say, this form of regenerative agriculture is by no means the silver bullet that it's so often portrayed to be. And it's certainly not what the world's leading climate scientists are most excited by. 
Yeah, I really, really doubt that the way we should fix our climate is by having more cows out there munching on grass. All right, two, creation of a false dichotomy. The documentary carefully positions holistic grazing as the answer to intensive animal agriculture, including the monocropping that occurs to feed factory-farmed animals. This really makes sense. Yes, it's not either or. These are not the only two ways you can eat. We can feed the planet in the entire world, either have holistic grazing or uh, factory farming. There are other ways to to grow food on, on the land. And they just present this as, well, if you don't want factory farming, you have to have uh, holistic grazing. Uh, no. And this, three, I think this is the real killer. Unclear about how the proposed solutions would affect our diets. Regardless of the above claims being scientifically supported or not, we'll come to that. If one is to advocate for a shift to holistic grazing, this will inevitably result in a dramatic reduction in global meat supply. In turn, this means shifting to more plant-based diets. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing we've been saying forever. Of course, this isn't an answer. We don't have like all these planets out there to graze all these animals. The reason you, you do factory farming is it keeps it cheap and it doesn't use up a lot of land. It doesn't use up a lot of employees. You're going to change all that. Then meat's going to be extremely expensive and and land intensive and, and it's going to be, so just go, just eat vegetables, just eat, eat grains, just go plant-based, go vegan, like just forget this nonsense. And they're not honest about it. They act like, they act like we're just going to substitute all that factory farmed meeting with holistically grazed animals. Well, there's a lot more in this article. If you want to look at it on plantbasednews.org, or you can look at the website for this, um, new book that's coming out, I think early next year, which is called Plant Proof. <laughs> Plant Proof. Sounds really interesting. It sounds like just what I need because, you know, it's it seems like it's going to be written for regular people, not scientists, but it's going to like try to focus some of the science for those of us who really need it. We know these arguments are nonsensical, but you know, you need to have the facts and figures at your fingertips. So hopefully this book will supply it. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer. Be safe out there. Social distance. Stay home. Wash your hands and listen to podcasts.